Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, as the war in Ukraine continues, we look at the already growing humanitarian crisis, with tens of thousands of people fleeing the violence, many heading to neighboring countries. We head to Moldova to find out how they're preparing. We speak to an Afghan interpreter for the Canadian military who fled Kabul with his family last summer, only to find himself stuck in Kiev and in another crisis, caught up in red tape waiting to come to Canada. But first, we speak to a conflict analyst who's worked in both Russia and Ukraine, including with the Ukrainian military, about what she's hearing from friends in both countries. Well, it's 5 a.m. in Ukraine's capital, and it's not clear what dawn will bring for the people of Ukraine today on this Saturday there. It's been 48 hours since President Vladimir Putin of Russia declared a military operation in Ukraine, ostensibly a declaration of war on its neighbor. The invasion began early yesterday with missile strikes on cities and military bases. That's continued. There's been the sound of gunfire throughout the night and explosions in Kyiv. Invading Russian forces apparently are closing in on the capital in an apparent attempt to occupy Ukraine's seat of government. The Ukrainian capital, one of multiple cities under attack tonight. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, predicted that Russia would use all its forces and predicted an onslaught on the capital tonight as Russian forces appeared to be positioning themselves to try to encircle the Ukrainian capital. Again, the steady sound of explosions could be heard through the night in Kyiv. Just one of several uh, videos online uh, with sounds of explosions. Well, tonight, uh, Russia vetoed a UN Security Council resolution in New York demanding that Moscow stop all attacks on Ukraine and withdraw all troops. China, India, and the United Arab Emirates had abstained. Now, faced with Russia's ongoing not onslaught, NATO is sending response forces to help protect members nations in Eastern Europe in response to the invasion. That includes the Baltic states, as well as Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, and so forth. Um, and Western allies, including Canada today, again stepped up coordinated sanctions. Prime Minister Trudeau saying for the first time, the sanctions will target key government figures, including President Putin and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Putin has chosen to upend 75 years of peace by invading a peaceful, unprovocative neighbor. And we are responding strongly and in a united way. Another sanction move, one that has not been approved yet, uh, but seemed like something that wouldn't happen and now seems to be moving towards perhaps happening quite quickly, is the Prime Minister said Canada is also conferring its support to remove Russia from the SWIFT payment system, a critical part of the global banking system. We've made it clear that all options are on the table when it comes to imposing steep costs on Russia's unjustified and unprovoked invasion. And that includes taking steps to exclude Russia from making financial transactions around the world. Excluding Russian banks from SWIFT would make it even more difficult for President Putin to finance his brutalities. Still, as international pressure on Russia mounts, the invasion of Ukraine continues. And for many, the deep fear is the thought of the bloodshed still to come. Well, Vervaro Pakomenko knows both Ukraine and Russia very well, has worked in some of the most um, con some conflict areas that we've been talking about for years, um, both in Georgia as well as in Ukraine itself, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, she's now in Moncton, New Brunswick, and she joins me now to discuss this further. Vervaro, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us tonight. Thank you for having me. 
I know you have friends in Ukraine that you've been in contact with. Uh, what has been the situation tonight? We've heard lots of explosions, lots of gunfire close to the capital. Um, what have you been hearing from Kiev tonight? Yes, probably Kiev is the epicenter of the fighting in, in the country tonight. Um, everybody expecting it to be stormed. People are hide, hiding in their basements. Many are in the metro stations. Uh, there was even news coming today that a baby was born just in a metro station in under underground. Yep. Those who managed to flee the city now staying in an incredible traffic jam heading towards the west because it's the only part of the country where still affect, affected the least and the western uh, neighbors of Ukraine opened its borders. So some of my friends just sleeping now in the little store by the side of the road because they didn't manage to reach any city by night. So it's all very, very dramatic. But also some of my friends uh, took up arms and joined the army, went to fight. I honestly, I remember being in Mariupol in 2014 when the situation was somewhat, when there was the sound of shelling, when you had people leaving, when you had people fleeing. It's, it is a, um, I can only imagine for you tonight, difficult to have to speak to, even to be able to talk to your friends who are trying to escape these situations. Those who stayed behind in Kiev, what is keeping them there? So for many, it's, uh, as I said, it's a patriotic duty. They believe they have to defend their countries country, especially men. Uh, also, many women fight in army, and not only in army, but uh, territorial defense units being created. People are getting weapons from the government and just standing up to defend uh, their cities. Uh, for many, it's just when I ask why you stay, said, but where to go now? Everywhere. It seems that Russia has been attacking everywhere. Uh, for others, it's an issue of having uh, relatives who cannot move. Uh, a friend who moved, whom I just mentioned that she's traveling towards the east. Her pregnant sister stayed in uh, in Kiev because it's too dangerous in her condition to travel. Uh, especially elderly people cannot go anywhere. Uh, and very often their uh, children just stay with them. The men of conscription age uh, are not allowed to leave the country now and also stay. So, so far... Um, UN reported that about 50,000 Ukrainians uh, fled to the neighboring countries, but it's just nothing compared to the size of the country. So a majority are there. You've spent a lot of time in, in parts of Ukraine. You spent a lot of time in eastern Ukraine, um, where where the war has been going on since 2014. Um, when you look at the Ukrainian army um, itself, I mean, you, you helped train the Ukrainian army to some extent, in, at least in how to respect civilians. Um, what do you think, how do you think this progresses? Uh, not militarily, just how do you think, do you think that this will be a very bloody and, and deadly fight? It will be. Honestly, I didn't believe that this war will start exactly for that reason, because I knew that the Ukrainian army will resist so much that I believe that Russian officials realize this. They realize how much blood it will bring, not just to Ukrainian soil, but how many Russian soldiers will be killed in there. And that's what we already get in this report, that just dozens and dozens, probably even hundreds already being killed. Uh, and I don't know. For me, it's still just a mystery how 
how the logic in Kremlin worked to decide to start this war. But Ukrainian army is now very committed. If you were in, in Mariupol in 2014, you could see probably that there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of misunderstanding who, what to be on what side, what to do, uh, who is coordinating their activities. Now there is nothing of a kind. Uh, people reporting from uh, Donetsk region, from Kramatorsk, that a lot of men go and just volunteering to join the army there. And eight years ago, it's believed to be a very pro-Russian city. And the coordination in the army is quite good now. And I worked with the Ukrainian army, as you said, for almost three years. Uh, we've been training them on uh, international humanitarian law. And I could see how they really learning, how they are ready to become better. And not only on the fighting side, but also on accepting and adopting the protection of civilians into their daily life uh, and all those commitments taking them. So now we can see how they communicating with civilians, how uh, not only civilian authorities, not only President Zelensky, uh, but army, police, uh, almost hourly communicating with civilians, warning them when they need to go and hide, what they should do and what they should not be doing uh, to avoid being targeted. So I think they really progressed and doing quite doing really well. I mean, you're right. That is an incredible, incredible step forward for that army, considering what what it was like in 2014, because it was not a professional army in 2014, and to see it now. And I wonder, you're right. I wonder if there's been a miscalculation on the Russian side as to what exactly they were walking into. Um, you know, you you you've spent a lot of time in Russia as well. Obviously, you're Russian. You you've spent a lot of time oh, yeah. there. You spent a lot of time in you spent a lot of time in Ukraine. And and you're not alone. There's many Russians and Ukrainians who spent time in each other's countries. For those who don't understand the relationship between the two countries, they're more like cousins than than enemies. That's right. Probably, I don't know. Every fourth person in Russia have some some relatives in Ukraine. I have both of my grandparents coming from Ukrainian origin and from the uh, from that region. Uh, they were just expelled to uh, to Siberia and that's where I'm from but if you look at even in the Russian government uh, there is there in the the parliament you would see many people there who are from Ukraine and in Ukraine itself it's not so much it's not really an ethnic conflict probably almost half of the Ukrainian army is Russian-speaking army is Russian-speaking so the same yeah sorry so go ahead I just wanted to say, and also Ukrainian President Zelensky, he's uh, from southeastern part uh, of the country. Russian is his native language and his first language. And he was elected with a 70% support. So it's not what really Russia tries to show and portray that Russians are being somehow abused or there is even a genocide toward Russian people in Ukraine. It's just not the case. Не 
And that is the sound of Russians taking to the street for the second straight night to voice opposition to the war in Ukraine. That one, a demonstration in St. Petersburg tonight, chanting no to war. Uh, Vavara, I mean, you spent a lot of time in Russia. Obviously, you spent a lot of time working on Russia when you were at the International Crisis Group. Uh, what do you see? Uh, how do you interpret these protests? And, and what do you think they mean fundamentally? I was surprised that actually so many people all across the country went out to the streets uh, because recently we didn't see so many protests in Russia. I remember eight years ago when uh, in 2014 uh, war just started in Ukraine, there were hundreds of thousands of people going out into the streets in Moscow to protest uh, the war back then, and I was there. But since then, the situation in Russia changed dramatically. Uh, Russian authorities really pushing on opposition and uh, arresting people, threatening, poisoning, and people are afraid. Also, many just prefer to leave the country. And now when I'm receiving uh, messages from my friends who are out in the streets, who are being arrested, who are spending nights in uh, police stations, I'm surprised, but it's still not so many people to to somehow change or affect uh, minds of people in Kremlin. Uh, but I think it's it's important because I can see how Ukrainians are looking after this, how they share this information, how every Russian celebrity who uh, condemns the war in Ukraine, every voice is important. So for them, and uh, like President Zelensky is addressing Russian people, trying to... Yeah to make people understand what's going on there. Uh, but I think Russian people will start feeling the effects of war pretty soon. We already see how the mothers have started, started hiding their sons uh, because they are being uh, called to join an army, those 18, 19 years old. Um, and now there are reports that the country con- con- Conscripts are being forced to sign contracts and go to fight uh, in Ukraine. Uh, People are afraid of this. In one day of war in Ukraine, Russia lost hundreds of people. And it's probably highest number compared even to war in Chechnya or in, in Afghanistan per day. And... Also, we, we can see the economic effects of this war. Life in Russia is already not so easy, especially after two years of pandemics. And I think it will start getting to people. So it's a, it's a very dramatic days for Russia. I think we now, with that attack on, Ki- on Kyiv two days ago, it was a probably much deeper and much worse changes in Russia happening than we can even understand. We've got a completely different authorities, completely different regime now. Yes, certainly a much more, um, Vladimir Putin, as he's gotten older, seems to be much more alone and certainly a lot more autocratic, even than he was back when when we were covering the story back in 2014, 2015 in Russia. I, I guess before we, we leave, I wanted to ask you quickly about the, the people you've been in, in contact with, both in Moscow and, 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 in, and, in, and in Kiev. Is there a sense, any sense of hope here at all that this won't end in a worst case scenario that we've seen? I can see that people in Ukraine are prepared prepared to fight. 
uh, they realize they're on their own, that no one going to join them in their fight. So they are very helpful to other countries for the support they receive, but they understand they're going to be the only one on the ground. And the morale in the army is very high. They are ready and can uh, continue fighting. Uh, I think that Russian people are still cannot realize and cannot understand what it is going on. I believe many thought that it would be just a very short incursion into the country. But it's something we just Russia keeps repeating over its history, hoping for the short victorious war uh, to solve domestic problems. And it's never brings that results which were expected. So unfortunately, Roberta. yep. I think it's going go to go bad. I, I think we're going to get quite a dark future in the next, especially a couple of weeks. Bavera Pakomenko, thank you so much. I, I Obviously, we all hope that you're incorrect, but you, it certainly seems to be the common belief uh, for those who know both countries as well as you do. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, the humanitarian cost of Russia's invasion is also growing by the day. Reports of long lines of cars, including Varvera, our previous guest, talking about people she knows trying to leave the fighting or trying to flee the fighting towards safer ground. Cars inching their way towards safety. Varvera telling us one of someone she knows they're sleeping in a roadside stall tonight, uh, a family, because they're trying to get out and there's just no way they can go quickly. Uh, most of them heading to the west of the country, away from the fighting. Also into neighboring states, thousands of Ukrainians have already crossed into neighboring countries uh, such as Poland, Hungary, Romania, Moldova, Moldova, Slovakia. Now, today, Canada's immigration minister, Sean Fraser, says our government is preparing for potential influx of refugee claims from Ukraine. They've been preparing for weeks. He says consular services are set up in neighboring countries and resources have been positioned to start receiving and processing applications from Ukrainians quickly. Uh, I do have confidence that we're prepared to deal with this more quickly than we have uh, ever before. Uh, and because we've been preparing for a number of weeks, uh, I feel that we're well equipped to deal with a potential influx of applications in a short period of time. That's Canada's Immigration Minister, Sean Fraser. Well, Canada has opted to prioritize immigration applications from Ukraine, has also set up a hotline to answer Ukraine-related immigration questions. One of the countries on the front lines tonight is Moldova, uh, one of Ukraine's neighbors, already seeing an influx of people leaving Ukraine. And that's where we find Globe and Mail correspondent Nathan Vanderclip. Uh, Nathan, if you're watching from afar, it's been so hard to make sense of what exactly is unfolding. You were in Ukraine. You're now in Moldova. What has the last 48 hours been like for you? Well, of course, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe it's been less than 48 hours at, at, at this moment. But yesterday morning, much of Ukraine woke up to explosions. And since then, you know, we've seen tanks rolling across the border. And then sort of everything has sort of escalated from a whole bunch of different fronts. Um, we now have uh, Russian forces advancing on Kiev. Uh, we've had paratroopers coming in. We have had amphibious forces coming in from the sea. Uh, we have heavy artillery moving in from different parts of the country, fierce battles to, um, uh, you know, at, at some of the critical junctures around Kiev, uh, as well as around sort of the the, the northern areas uh, or the areas north of uh, the Crimean Peninsula, uh, which has become a major beachhead for coming in. And, and so just 
tremendous violence, attacks on kindergartens, um, attacks on ships, cargo ships. Um, it, it is, it is, I mean, it's war. You were in Odessa uh, recently, uh, a city that, uh, that, that Vladimir Putin has spoken about uh, specifically uh, in the past. What was the mood? What was the sense of, of the people there? I mean, I know that this, a lot of people may have felt this day wasn't going to come after years of of, of war in the east and years of of sort of uh very close calls but no no invasion right and right up until the first missile struck i think that was the general view it was it was a very kind of discombobulating place to be because you were listening to uh the increasingly urgent warnings that were coming from the white house and then being on the ground and seeing life is normal, you know, families out walking on the beach and bars full of people and all these sorts of things. Uh, because I think there was just kind of an inability to conceive that this, what has happened could be possible. And then suddenly it was, and, you know, you know, within hours, there were lines at ATMs, there were lines at gas stations, and then suddenly there were ATMs that were bereft of cash and gas stations that had gone dry and very quickly, of course, it was a country at war. And, the, the, you know, the lines are now queuing up over many kilometers at the border, uh, the borders with uh, with Ukraine's neighboring countries as people try to get out. You're in one of Ukraine's neighboring countries now. What was that experience like moving from Odessa to, to Chisinau? So uh, I, I actually went through Romania, which I think proved to be, uh, in terms of ease of logistics anyways fortunate because that that route as when i went yesterday uh, was still um relatively passable um I, I was speaking with people here today who came up from odessa who talked about 50 kilometers of two-way highway where instead of one lane in either direction both lanes were heading up towards moldova uh, we've seen statistics from the government here. That was this morning. Presumably it's gotten longer since then that at least one of the border crossings had eight kilometers of cars backed up at it. People coming in between 8 a.m. this morning and 3 p.m. The number of Ukrainians that had crossed into Moldova um, had increased by uh, what from 10,000, just under 10,000 to 16,000 people. So, uh, you know, there is a, a real movement here and it's been complicated uh, by a rule that was put in place by the government of Ukraine yesterday. Um, that men of fighting age, up to the age of 60, um, cannot leave the country now. Um, so there have been families that have been split apart where um, they came together as a family to the border and the men were turned around and sent back. We've seen images of, of, of fathers bidding their, you know, their wives and children goodbye. Um, you know, heart, obviously heart-wrenching images. Um, how are the neighboring countries such as Moldova preparing for what looks to be a mass arrival of Ukrainian, of Ukrainians fleeing the fighting. Well, I can tell you here in the capital of Chisinau, the um, uh, the hotels are already full. I, I, I checked in this evening. I had a reservation, fortunately, but I think there were two or three hotels left to make reservations, and I reserved earlier today. The, the person I checked in behind was told they had the last room in the hotel, and the people at the hotel said every other hotel in the city is full. Um, they have a, a center here, a welcome center here. Um, and it's not full yet because I think there has been uh, hotel capacity, which is obviously not there anymore. Um, but what, what I found really striking was the degree of generosity on display here. Now, I guess we'll see how long that lasts, 
Um, but I went to a house uh, today that's owned by a charity and they put out a call for donations. And it was just a staggering, absolutely staggering amount of stuff that was showing up. I mean, they had, they had quite a large backyard and the entire thing was full and full, I would say, in some places to a height of 10 feet with stuff, with food, with blankets, mattresses, an umbrella stroller, um, all sorts of things that people were just bringing in, in a really steady load um, as, as donations. So for now here, there, there is a, a, a tremendous spirit of hospitality. Part of that, by the way, is because uh, I think people in Moldova um, already have an experience with Russia invading and, and, and taking part of their territory. And there is a fear that given what's happening in Ukraine now, that they could be next. And just to, for listeners, Moldova is by no means a wealthy country, um, one of the poorest in Europe. Um, so the generosity there even more remarkable to that sense. Is there a sense in a country such as Moldova that, that Vladimir Putin, that this invasion may be heading their way as well? Absolutely. Yeah. People saying straight out that, uh, you know, I, there was there were some people I, I, I met up with a couple of guys. I was at this refugee center today and I was interviewing someone who had come across. They were, uh, I, I think, a religious group, uh, family group, and they had come in three cars, one of which was a PT cruiser, another which was like a, just a Renault station wagon, not big cars, standard cars, three cars. And they had 31 children. And five adults, 36 people in total in three cars. Just remarkable. Anyways, as I was talking to them, um, just the two men came up and said, hey, listen, we've got a big house. We've got three rooms. We can take three families. And, and you're seeing some of that. One of those men then said, yeah, we are at the same time as we're um, offering to host people. We are also thinking about where our next steps could be ourselves uh, in case that becomes necessary. I'm with Nathan Vanderclip, Global Mail correspondent in Moldova tonight after spending time in Ukraine, including in Odessa. Uh, you and Mark wrote a really fascinating story about sort of what has been seen as a much clearly the Ukrainian military is outgunned here by a much larger uh, Russian force. Uh, but there was one story about an, an island off the coast of, of Ukraine that has sort of captured the imagination there of its uh, of its resilience, so to speak. Uh, tell me a bit about that, if you could. Yeah, uh, and, and you may have to tell me uh, what, what your standards for language are on your okay. show before I proceed. <laughs> it's a family show. It's a family show, but okay. yeah, we get, we, we, get the, we get the hint too, yeah. Yeah, okay, fine. Um, yeah, so, it's, uh, so there's, there's this very, very small island. It's 0.17 square kilometers in size uh, that is called Snake Island, and it basically lies off the shore of the um, kind of ex- south western extremity mm. of ukraine at the border uh with romania um and um and, and it's very very small but it's of course important in terms of uh, ukrainian territory just because of where it lies uh it's been guarded by border guards it has been seen for months as as, as potentially important in defensive terms um and uh there were a number of border guards there and a russian uh, navy ship showed up and um, and and there was actually there's multiple videos of the exchange that happened. It all happened over loudspeakers. Um, there's video of it. And it's it's such a small island. There's this warship offshore. The warship is I mean, it's not bigger than the island, but it's also not that much smaller because that island is so small. Um, and you just have loudspeakers going back and forth uh, because the, the, the this warship is so close. And and you hear sort of from the Russian side, uh, a male voice say, I suggest you surrender your weapons and capitulate. Otherwise, I will open fire. Do you copy? 
And then the Ukrainians uh, respond back and they've got sort of an open mic with their uh, with their loudspeaker. And, you know, one of them says, this is it. Should I tell him to go F himself just in case another man says? And then the first man comes back on the loudspeaker, says Russian warship, go yourself. Yeah. And, uh, and and it's it's a remarkable show of defiance, which unfortunately ended in, in sort of the devastation of the island. Thirteen border guards were killed. Uh, but the video of what has taken place um, ha- has become, I think, a real rallying cry uh, for Ukraine's efforts to uh, resist the Russian attack that the president of Ukraine has specifically mentioned. The 13 men said that they will be awarded as, as heroes of Ukraine um, and, uh, and, and, you know, across the Russian speaking world, that, that sort of that riposte, the Russian warship, go yourself, has been, um, uh, has been, has been spread on spo- uh, social media, people making it their profile pictures and that sort of thing. Nathan, is there a sense, and I think President Zelensky mentioned this uh, on Friday, is there a sense, once again, that Ukraine, despite all the tough talk coming out of the West, that Ukraine has been pretty much left to itself to fight the Russians here? Well, that's certainly the sense among um, some Ukrainians. There have been, of course, some shipments of arms, including actually some some quite deadly weaponry that's come from uh, the U.S. and others. Canada has sent um, guns and ammo. Um, but there's also been, you know, some shipments of, for example, helmets. Um, and, and people here find that quite laughable. One of the people I spoke with here in Moldova tonight, a Ukrainian man, I asked him, you know, well, would you go back and fight? Because he got out just before men were no longer able to get out. Um, and he said, well, why, why would I go back and fight? How, how are we going to be able to you know, resist uh, a, a military force as powerful as Russia without genuine support from Western countries and genuine support in the form of the kinds of weaponry that could allow Ukraine to stage a proper defense? I guess, the, I mean, what we're really looking for now is, and you mentioned this earlier, is that is that it's Kiev that clearly the, the Russians have gone after. Is there any sense there of what, from anybody, of what the next month will look like if, in fact, the the government falls and and Russia takes charge? Well, I think we've seen uh, examples in other areas of Russia installing puppet governments. Um, What I I mean, I think one of the big questions is, would uh, Russia be satisfied with that um, in terms of uh, asserting political control through a proxy and allowing to Ukraine to remain a de facto independent country, um, or given what Putin has said, uh, questioning whether Ukraine has a real sort of history of being of, of, of being an independent nation, whether that is in fact an indicator that he intends to make his own borders encompass what is now um, an independent country. Nathan Vanderclip, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. I know we've been talking a lot about the humanitarian crisis that this war is already provoking in Ukraine. Again, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees saying today some 50,000 Ukrainians have already fled the country, many to neighboring countries such as Poland and Moldova, Slovakia, and others. Um, And as many as 100,000 have already been displaced. That is just a drop in the bucket. We've also heard from various guests over the last 48 hours about just how difficult it is 
to move right now in Ukraine, to get away, to get out of danger because of the traffic and just the sheer number of people trying to move to safety. Um, one guest was telling us earlier tonight that someone she knows, her family had stopped to sleep in a shelter on the side of the road because they knew they just couldn't get any farther uh, this evening. Meantime, obviously, people in Kiev uh, taking shelter in underground uh, basements, in the subway system, and so forth. It is a terrifying time there. Think back not too far long ago to last late last summer when we were seeing similar chaos in Kabul. Um, the Taliban had taken over. Kabul had fallen. People were trying desperately to flee that country. Well, Jawad Hakmal had worked as an interpreter for the Canadian military. He was in Afghanistan when the Taliban took over, uh, when Kabul fell. And he went to the airport to try to get out. And he says he spent several days there trying to get out. And he didn't, or he couldn't at least not from the Canadian military. But he and his family were rescued after Canada closed its embassy, cut short its own evacuation of Afghans who'd worked with the military during its 10-year mission there. But a special mission was carried out following a request from the Globe and Mail, the newspaper, to the office of Ukrainian President Zelensky. Now, Jawad Hakmel and his family, there's 11 other people with him, including his mom, his wife, his kids, were all flown to Kiev. They were given 15-day visas, and the expectation was that they would quickly be able to move on to Canada. That was the plan. Turns out, he's still there. He and his 11 fa other family members are there tonight in a hotel uh, paid for by the paper. They are still there, though, trapped, caught in red tape, Immigration and Refugee and Citizenship Canada red tape. So after fleeing one chaos, chaotic situation and war, and, and the threat of death, he finds himself, he and his family find themselves caught up in war once again, this time in a strange country where they don't speak the language. Jawad Hakmel joins me now from Kiev. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, sir, from you, from all the Canadians, from all the civilian Canadians, except the government. That's why I'm stuck here. That's why I'm in this hill. It is just because of the bureaucracy, and this is just because of the officials of Canadians. I, 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 I'm stuck here. I'm lived here. Uh, unfortunately, the situations are very worse. And from the last eight hours, everyone is just uh, like a prisoner. We are just living in the rooms. We are not even able to go outside. All the roads are blocked. Armies are on the streets. Nobody is allowed even to go to the supermarket to get the food. So it is just like a war zone going on. And I understand you're there. Uh, who's there with you? Uh, there is with me my wife, my kids, my mother and sister, and my brother. So your whole family has come with you on this journey? Not, ho not, whole not family. Whole yeah. Half of my family is still lived in Afghanistan. My father is lived in Afghanistan. My brothers are lived in Afghanistan. By the time we were supposed to evacuate to Ukraine, there were no more space in the aircraft. So half of the family is left, half of the family is with me. What what has it been like? You So, so you can't leave the hotel room. You're in a country, I, I don't imagine you speak the language. How difficult has it been for you and your family in the past 48 hours, just as this, or the last 72 hours, as this has begun to happen again? You're witnessing another, essentially another war. Believe me, if I tell you, sir, I feel like I'm in a hell now. It is very difficult to imagine how it how it how it would be difficult in a strange country having no access to food, to health service, to, to, to money, even to go outside. 
it is very dangerous, very difficult for me when I just fell in this situation. Like it is more worse than Afghanistan. When I was in Kabul, Kabul was falling. At, even there was the same situation. It was a war zone, but at least it was my country. I was able to talk with someone to go to find a shelter, to yell to someone for help. But here, I even don't know to, how to speak with someone. Having no documents, I'm living here illegally. My visas are already expired, not able to go outside. If I just run outside, the police will capture me right away. N having no food, on the other hand, so cold. On the other hand, my family, kids, my wife, my pregnant wife, she is already really sick. It is, believe me, really frustrated situations I'm really worried about. What are your, what do you tell your family uh, about about what's what's happened? What do you tell your family about when they ask about, about how you are, where you are? It must be such a difficult conversation. Exactly. This is the conversation from the last six months. Every day, every month, my family was asking me, the Jawid, when will we leave this country? When will we leave this, this, this hell? It is very difficult living in a room, eating in a room, sleeping in the same room, washing in the same room. And it is not one day or two days. It is six months. Very difficult. Now, whenever I'm talking with them, no one is believing me because no one knows that when we will live. From this, from this six months, I was just lying to them that one day we will leave everything. And now we are just stuck in a situation. We are not able to go forward, to go backward. Even my mother several times crying that, please send me back to Afghanistan. If I die, I don't care, but at least I will be with my half of my family with my with my husband i mean my father with her kids so we're not able to go backward we're not able to go front there is no will left for me we're just here in the rooms just counting the moments for our deed i remember being in kandahar and seeing the remnants of what had been the soviet occupation the soviet invasion of afghanistan your mother must remember what it was like to live during a, a Russian invasion. What has she told you about now? What is What are her thoughts? This is the question from the last four, eight hours, all the families crying, especially my mother, because they have experienced the very the invasion of uh, Russians in Afghanistan. Lots of my family members were died in that attack. Uh, they were working for the Afghan government when Russian invaded in Afghanistan, five of my family members were died. So when my mother heard about their invasion, from that time, she's just crying to me all the day and night that Jawid, what the, what what will happen to us? Because she knows she have experienced how bad these Russians are. They, she says that they're not caring about anything. They're just they're not humans. They're whenever they uh, attacked on Kandar city, they were killing, they were shooting everyone. They were not just li listening to anyone, and they were not caring about any humanity. Jawad. I want to ask you about how you arrived in Kiev, but before I do, I just wanted to ask you about what you've heard from the Canadian government and the IRCC, the International Red Cross, uh, over the last months that you've been in Ukraine. What do you understand to be the delay? Uh, the, this is the question. I even don't know what is the problem. This is the question from the last six months I asked from the Embassy of Canada in Kiev from IRCC, from the officials that please at least tell me what is the problem. If I'm a terrorist, if there is a secure security concerns, please tell me that, please at least deny me that we are not accepting you, you are a bad person. This is the uh, the Minister of Immigration told to the Globe and Mail editor, he met with him in, uh, in person and he told them that 
There is no any security concerns in Jawid's case. There is no any red flags in her in his case. The only issue is that because of the paperwork of the immigration of Canada, it is a long process. It takes some time, so he have to wait. This is the only thing. So even even they even didn't provide me a single dollar in this worst situation. I'm just like a beggar. I'm just begging to the peoples. A Canadian interpreter become a beggar. I'm just begging to my friends every time I need grocery. I'm just calling to my friends to Afghanistan, to my relatives, to Canada uh, and America, and telling them please send me some money. I need to buy some food for my for my family. I several times uh, told to the Canadian embassy and officials of IRCC that please, if you want to process my case, if it takes so long, at least provide me the basic needs of a human, like food, uh, health service, and financial service or shelter. But they rejected everything. They says, we are sorry, we cannot do this until your case is processed. They just left me behind. On the time they needed me, on the time or they needed me, I did everything for them. But now they just left me behind. And Jawad, we know that the Canadian embassy in Kiev is now closed, right? It's the people, the embassy staff have gone. Yeah, 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 exactly. The embassy is gone. I contacted them uh, yesterday. I contacted them today. I contacted them a month ago. I contacted them when it was supposed to start the invasion. Uh, I told them that the situations are getting worse. Please help me, please. I'm in very worse situation. But unfortunately, no one replied to me. Everyone denied I'm back with Jawed Hakmal, who's speaking to me tonight from Kiev, uh, where he's been now with his family, including his mom, his as, uh, his wife, his pregnant wife, his kids, uh, for almost six months now, waiting to come to Canada after being evacuated from Afghanistan after the fall to the Taliban, uh, now stuck in another war zone in Kiev as the Russian army advances. Um, you did a lot of work for the Canadian military when you were there. Uh, when you were in Afghanistan. I know that they've spoken very highly of you. You tell me they've spoken very highly of the work that you did. Uh, and yet you weren't able, this is, it wasn't the Canadian government that got you out of Kabul either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, 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 were, they were even not able to take me out from Kabul. When I came out from Kabul, it was like on a person relations. They first, they left me on that war and second, they left me in a second war. So, when I was rescued there from Kabul, I said, now I got a chance for being alive. I, my kid, I will educate my kids. I, I will have a safe life anymore in Canada. But again, after six months, waiting for six months, again, they left me in another war. And again, no one is uh, helping me. How much further away does Canada feel tonight than it did when you were waiting outside that airport in Kabul? Uh, like for days, I was uh, even four days. I slept outside of the Kabul airport. I was every time I was contacting them, the, them that please, I'm just here. There are thousands of people. I'm not able to enter to the airport. Is there anyone? But they were saying that we are sorry. We no one can go outside of the airport. If you are able to come to the airport, you, it is your choice. But we cannot do anything. For four days, I was sleeping over there. And finally, on the final day, there was a big suicide attack in front of the um, uh, airport and everything was uh, collapsed. Then I tried uh, with this personal relations by the Globe and Mail and they helped me. Finally, they uh, evacuated me to Ukraine. And uh, I thought that now everything is finished after lots of uh, struggling. Finally, I find a solution. Finally, I will have I will give a good life to my family. But unfortunately, after six months, 
all of that 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 hopes are just lost because clearly you were afraid for your life in Afghanistan you had to get out of kabul if i understand yeah 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 exactly in kabul i felt like it was like like it was a war zone i thought that i will never be never be alive here but when i left the kabul now this this ukraine is worse than that because at least if i was there i was able to talk with someone it was my country to find a solution for something to find a shelter to find a food even there if the kids are sick to take them to a hospital and here nothing is there what what happens do you think in the next in the next few days uh, the next few days uh, like right now i'm talking with you i'm just sitting in my room looking on the window and on the sky and just looking when a rocket or a missile will come to the hotel and it will hit the hotel and kill all my all my family i have no hopes left for me for the few for the next few days because this will happen definitely this will happen a rocket will come or something will happen to my hotel if it not happened russians invaded they will come to the city and when they know about me that i have worked it for the nato forces for the canadian forces they will definitely punish me they will de- definitely kick me out and i'm just there, there is no hope left in at all for me i guess the jawad because of where you lived you lived through the many many violent years in kandahar you know your parents lived through an invasion of of of, of afghanistan you've lived through the fall of kabul i i wonder what makes it what makes you feel hopeless right now given how much you've had to hope in the past exactly in the past if i was in afghanistan i was uh, i was uh, experiencing lots of ambushes of the talibans of the insurgents i was an interpreter i experienced lots of ieds attacks or uh, suicide attacks of the insurgents but at least i was having hope there that one day i will find a way to go out from afghanistan and find a safe life but now that's why i am hopeless because i am i am stuck i'm just trapped in a situation that i'm not able to go forward and even not go to go backward because i don't have a do- i don't have documents i don't have any official uh, papers from the government of ukraine i don't have any documents from the government of canada and don't have money and lots of kids not able to go to take them back to afghanistan or to an neighboring country and still stuck here so there is no hope left for me because uh, definitely i will be killed by the russians i am like one of their enemy here i am an interpreter who work for the canadians so it is definitely their enemy and it is definitely clear that the russians will come to this city in a few hours or in a few days so no hope is left for me unfortunately this is in in all my life in this 33 years this is the first time i really feel hopeless jawad hakmal i i really appreciate you speaking to me tonight um i wish you and your family safety and i certainly wish you and your family um an opportunity to come to this country thank you so much really appreciate it, sir thank thanks for all the civilians of canadians who helped me in these 6 months even in these years everyone supported me civilian people especially my military commanders they really supported me every day and night i appreciate all of canadians thank you so much